Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whited and my guest today is Michael Arterberry, founder and executive director of the Youth Voices Centre New York, motivational speaker and author of the book Be Encouraged. We could probably do with some of that right now. You can find Michael on Twitter at M underscore Arterberry, that's A-R-T-E-R-B-E-R-R-Y. Michael, this interview finds us at the peak of the COVID pandemic in New York. How are things there? Um, things are fine. I, I mean, fine as they can be. You know, what I've realized throughout this process is that I'm a closet introvert. So I've, I'm enjoying it. I mean, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I'm staying in routine and it's allowing me to really sail through it. As far as out in the communities, you know, where I live, um, it's outside of New York, it's in Connecticut. It's a little bit more relaxed, so you can do the supermarkets, you can go to most uh, shops. So, I mean, you can get done what you need to get done. You know, you have your mask on and you social distance, so it's not too bad, Chris. Could you say just a little about your personal journey? You were a social worker and counsellor for 22 years. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, to do that, um, I would like to tell you a story. All right. And it's about a farmer and a donkey, Chris. You know, this story is going to set up and kind of talk about who I am and what I represent. But this farmer and a donkey and the donkey is one of the farmer's favorite farm animals, because once he finishes working on the farm, he brings the donkey back to the house and he allows the donkey to play with his kids. The donkey is more like a pet rather than a farm animal. And this is a ritual that they do on a regular basis. So one night he brings them home, the kids come out to play with him. But when he released them back out in the farm, during the middle of the night, he wandered and he fell into an empty water well. So when the farmer came out to get him the next morning, he wasn't there. The farmer looked around the farm and the farmer found him at the bottom of the well. So the farmer decides, you know, how am I going to get him out? So he goes over and gets six of his friends and they look in the well and they decide that they're going to pull him out of the well with some rope. So all six of them go and they get some rope and they start to lasso the donkey. They throw the rope, they miss. They throw the rope, they miss. They finally throw it by his hind legs. He steps into the rope. They shimmy it up his body and they start to pull. They pull the donkey moves. They pull the donkey moves. They pull the donkey moves. Then halfway up the well, they realize that the donkey's too heavy. So when they realize the donkey's too heavy, they lower him back to the bottom of the well. And now the farmer has to make a grim decision. You see, he can't feed him food at the bottom of the well because that wouldn't make any sense. He can't starve him because, like I said, the donkey was more like a pet. And one of his hot-headed friends were like, hey, just shoot him. He's like, nah, I can't do that. That's too violent. But one of his more reasonable friends said, listen, you don't want your kids to fall into the well. So we're going to have to cover them with some dirt. You're going to sacrifice your donkey, but your kids will be safe. So the farmer decides that he can live with that. So they all get shovels, Chris, and they start shoveling the dirt. And every time that dirt hit the donkey, the donkey would scream. And every time the donkey would scream, it would cause the farmer some distress. So you got dirt, scream, dirt, scream, dirt, scream. And then all of a sudden, the scream stopped. When the scream stopped, they give the donkey a moment of silence. 
but then they continue to put the dirt in the hole. Dirt, dirt, dirt. The next thing you know, you see the donkey's right ear. Dirt, dirt, dirt. The next thing you know, you see the donkey's half his body. Dirt, dirt, dirt. The next thing you know, that donkey walks right out of the well that he fell into. Now, every time that dirt came across the wall, Chris, it would fall on his back. He would shake it off and he would step on it. And he used every scoop of dirt that was meant to kill him to save his life. Now you ask about, you know, my background and what I, I've done with social work. I told you that story because I grew up in an alcoholic home. My dad was a raging alcoholic. And I have to say raging because, you know, he raged from the time I was born until he died when I was 16. So growing up as a teenager, you know, I never had a, a, a sense of balance. My days were consumed with what kind of night I was going to have once I got home. On top of the alcoholism, you know, my, 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 both my parents worked full time, but my dad's money went to drinking and my mother's money went to the house. My mother was a housekeeper, so she didn't have really the greatest job. And she raised four kids on that single housekeeping job. And so I lived in poverty. I didn't have much money. My neighborhood was dysfunctional. You had drugs, you had gangs, you had violence. And so all these things were the things that I had to combat and dodge on the way growing up. But when you ask about my social work background and, and my history of, of being, you know, an encourager and, and so forth, my passion for it is in the foundation of the things that I survived. And so I went into social work because I wanted to work with the young people so that if there's other young people that have come through or going through the things like myself, I'll be able to stand beside them and help them, Chris. Well, that's quite a story, Michael. You founded the Youth Voices Centre in 2008. Would you like to tell us more about what it does? I developed a program called Power of Peace first. And then I had success with the program Power of Peace. And because of the success of my program Power of Peace, I had to create the nonprofit so that I would I was able to receive funds to allow the program to exist. But the, the nonprofit is about being able to bring this youth development program to high schools, middle schools. And also I do a lot of staff development work within these schools. So I don't only work with the students, I work with the teachers as well. And basically, you know, our mission is to help these young people to live quality lives, quality lives, using the things that have, they have gone through, using obstacles as opportunities so that they are able to embark on futures that are much better than the cycles that they come from. And where are you running programs right now? I run them in schools. Usually when a school goes with me, my program runs with 25 to 30 students at a time. It's over two full, two full days of school for each level as two levels of the program. And I do them in schools. But what I do is if when I'm going into a school, I do an assembly for the entire school so that I'm able to plant the language of the program in the entire building as I go through the 25 to 30 students at a time. You say that the goal of the Power of Peace program is for youth to connect with their inner person and use that as a catalyst to act, 
rather than have their emotions determine their actions. How do you achieve that connection? Like I said, it's over a two-day period. So uh, I take my time. So the kids come in. So imagine the kids come in. It's about 25 of them. When I go to the principal, I ask for a cross-section. So when you look at that group, you're going to see the white student, the black student, the honor roll student, the struggling student. And part of the goal, like you said, with the introspect to, to get to know themselves, I also want them to be able to build community with students that are, are different than who they are. But what I do is over that two-day period, it's an interactive experience, and I run them through activities that allow them, and I tell the donkey story that I told you, so it's a good segue, but I allow them to walk back through their lives and see the landmines that they may have stepped on in the process of living and see they step on landmines and we do it as adults as well. And we don't realize once we step on the landmine that some damage has occurred. And the damage that occurred on the landmine starts to predict or push you in a direction to make your decisions in life. So as we go through the activities, they get to see and feel their dirt like the donkey and they get to start to strategize in a way that makes more sense to their story rather than being just reactive to certain situations, Chris. So I'm going to be honest, I'm skeptical of the impact of short-term programs and even motivational speaking. My eldest daughter was a youth worker for eight years and I noticed that the positive changes she achieved during her tenure were the consequences of a trusting relationship forged over months, if not years. What would you say to that? Life-changing experience is what the young people say once they go through my program. It's not like any other because I put it together I use my education and my life story to put it together. It speaks a lot differently. But a lot of students will tell you once they go through it that what I love is for a teenager in a school to go through it and then they recommend another because so, you can't explain it. I'm going to try to explain it to you, but you can't explain this experience, but they call it life changing. But the kid will tell another student, come and go to the Power of Peace group because I can't explain it to you, but it's it's life changing. And I love to watch a teenager's face as they're sitting in the group and they'll look and I'll say, hey, what's, what's the problem? And they'll say, "I now I know what they were talking about. And the reason why I say that, Chris, is because when I talk about two days and in interactive activities, we, we go deep. We go into the deep crevices of these young people and so when you say you may be skeptic, what, what I can say that you're right about is the fact that I can't promise you that a kid will take what they learned in my group and apply it, but I can promise you they will be at a crossroad where they have to make a decision. Before it was just, oh, I'm going to do that. After my experience, it will force them to say to themselves, I got an opportunity to do it this way, which is right, or I have an opportunity to do it the other way, which is the wrong way. So, you know, it's not guaranteed, but the kids that come out of it, you know, they come out of it really changed. How much follow through do you do on the program? 
Do you ever get the opportunity to meet with people and find how they've done subsequently? I normally don't take a school if they're not committed to me. So if you want me to just come in and be a Band-Aid on a wound, but I really want them to commit to it. So that being said, I rarely go into a school unless I'm going to be there for a, I'm part of a, a process and a part of a goal. So I'm in schools for maybe like two, three, maybe four. Some of my schools, I've been there for over 10 or 15 years, like that long. And so when you say follow up, I'm, I become a fixture in the building. So I see the kids as they, so I can get a kid in ninth grade and I'm with him throughout his entire high school career. And what happens with my program is there's two levels. So you come in the first level, then the second level, you choose to come back. Then after the second level, they're allowed to be co-facilitators. So once they get some of the, the fruits, they're allowed to come back and pass that on to other students. I've had successful stories. I've had a young lady who had four generations of people not graduating high school in her family. And be, because of the program, she was able to be the first of four generations to graduate high school. Um, but then I had a, a young fella who um, I'll never forget. I upset him because I said he was a genius, but either he was going to be a CEO or he was going to be in prison. And he, he forgot the fact that I said he was going to be a CEO. He only heard prison and he starts crying. But the, what's ironic is... Weeks later, I'm at another school, I'm coming out midday, and the same kid that cried because I said he would be in prison, he was cutting school. And so I leave, I'm walking out of the school, he's on the street, and we make eye contact. And I can see when he looked in my eyes, you know, he, he, he must have felt really convicted. He's not in school. He's hanging out on the street and all of that stuff must have went back through his mind of the advice that I gave him. You were a volunteer facilitator at Green Harbor Correction Facility. What did that involve? I did that up until the time my children were born. It was a program called AVP, Alternatives to Violence Project. And what I did is I went into a maximum security prison and what we did is we ran the inmates through these interactive activities so that they can also do somewhat like my students use their life stories to help them to press on to be positive once they get get out of jail, but not even once they get out to use the skills while they were in it. And it was pretty intense. You know, I would go in on a uh, Thursday night team bill with the inmates. Then I was there for 12 hours on Friday, 12 hours Saturday and then another six hours on Sunday. So, you know, you would go in and you would do these these activities with the inmates. And, you know, what was beautiful about it is I did it long enough that I, I watched guys do 35 years in prison, get out and, and actually become successful. CNN reckons that the United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world, 2.2 million adults at the end of 2016. Is that purely the outcome of unenlightened policy, or is this a natural consequence of the United States culture, do you think? Hey, yeah, no, that's it. That's it. You know what I mean? It's it's uh, living selfish lives and not worried about anybody but themselves. You know, there's an, a story or an analogy, I guess you can call it, that I tell to my young people, and it's it's about the crabs in a boiling pot. Now, if you put crabs in a boiling pot and you boil the water, 
They'll all try to climb out. And every time one is about to get out, one of the crabs inside, the hot water pulls them back in. And that's sort of the philosophy you have. You got everybody going for self. So nobody's lifting each other up. And so, you know, you you see a lot of, um, there's a term also used, backbiting. You know, people are not loyal. They're not really for each other. So uh, when you don't have that unity, you start to see a lot of disparity. And it's sad. Apart from programs like your own, have you any other thoughts on what can be done about that? I think it's working itself out on its own. I mean, let's let's be real. Let's look at COVID-19. You know, I mean, something like this of this magnitude allows people to self-reflect and self-reflection is 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 pinnacle. I think if people are put into a position where they have to think, so sometimes you have to make terrible decisions, run a really bad line for a while before you get some some insight and some clarity. So uh, maybe COVID, you know, making people slow down and, and process things will give them the ability to change things. But, you know, it's 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 so deep rooted that I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not one to try to save the world, but I try to influence the ones that I get my my eyes and my hands on, you know, Chris. That makes sense. Do you have a personal leadership philosophy? You know, I'm a spiritual guy. My my heavenly father, my my higher power is what motivates me. And I kind of use that as a basis of all that I do in my life. Do you think that makes a difference to your leadership? You know, in, in my faith, if you if you study and you believe in it enough and you have a relationship, I don't have to tell anyone what I believe in. It, it comes out within my attitude and what I do. Yeah, in episode 18 with Sarah David, we reflected on the need for leaders to engage with the spiritual, by which I mean to find personal purpose beyond the purely physical, material world. So I see it as a positive. What's your proudest achievement? My proudest achievement would be um, becoming a father. Um, it was a proud moment, but it was, it was, I was very fearful because I didn't have a model. So I remember wanting to have kids, but I was afraid that I couldn't be a good father because I didn't have a father to teach me to be a father. And I remember actually, you know, being nervous, you know, when you go to the hospital where we, my daughter was delivered to give my wife rest, they took the baby at night. So you didn't have to do the night feedings, you know, the nurse would do it. And, you know, they allowed her to recuperate and I could stay in the hospital with her. But I remember the anxiety of when the people finally said, you know, you can take her home. And, you know, we both of us kind of looked at each other like, whoa, when we get home, it's now our responsibility. But, um, you know, I had a loving mother, Chris. I mean, her love and it had to be big to overcome some of that craziness that was going on in my home. And I realized once I had my own children that she taught me both sides. She didn't teach me the masculinity of being a man because I was smart enough to get that from people in my community that were doing the right thing, but she taught me how to love. And so that love I'm able to give to my kids and not only my kids, Chris, the kids that I work with feel that same love. And that could be part of why 
they call it a life-changing experience because if you come into my room and you've never been nurtured properly by a parent for two days you get to see how it feels to be loved by a dad but like surrogate not biological and it does make a huge difference doesn't it in my book i look at the work of carl rogers the father of person-centered therapy he considered that people needed three things to thrive unconditional positive regard the lovely acceptance that you're talking about the opportunity to be authentic to be themselves and empathy so apart from your mum is there a person or persons that has inspired you along your journey i think i'm inspired by the youth you know what i mean i'm i'm inspired by the youth you know i've learned in my older age that the teacher can never stop being the student and so if you go into an environment and you're open to change you can you know i come home every day and i i, I took a class because I was able to look at a student and take something from that young person that I can apply to my life. So, you know, as far as it being a person, I think it's a, uh, a compilation of many. And is there another book, podcast or video you'd recommend to aspiring leaders? Yeah, you know, there's a book I read called The Dream Giver by Bruce Wilkinson. And what the book was about is that we are all born with a dream to be something. So, you know, you ever find that a, a, a little boy is always wanting to be the cop and cops are robbers. And believe it or not, that's a dream that was planted in him. But sometimes throughout life, somebody will bully you or circumstances will push you away from something that was given to you that you should have followed through on. And so what I after I read the book, I would go to like a barbecue and I found it like fun to say, uh, like you and I are talking, I say, hey, Chris, what did you want to be when you grow up? And you'll throw something out. And then I would make you tell me where in your life did you veer away from wanting to be that? And I think, you know, a lot of people do that. I mean, it happened in my home with my wife. You know, my wife went into the corporate world. She, she, she made great money. You know, she has the business mind, but she's a great author. And so I knew she wanted to write. And after I read the book, I was hesitant, Chris, because I didn't want to tell her right away because I knew if she left the corporate job, then, you know, that'd be a lot. That's some money out of the house. And we would struggle a bit. But don't you know, I eventually told her about the book and she left. She left a corporate job and she's now a professional ghostwriter. And that's what she does for a living. So, so this book is a nice way to lay out that we should follow our dreams rather than following what the world wants us to do. That's an interesting notion. I always played with Lego as a kid and ended up a civil engineer, so there you are. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Um, Chris, it would be patience. It would be patience. You know, I, I had a tendency of rushing, trying to get somewhere. And my advice to people now is to live in the moment. And so I would have enjoyed each moment a lot better because, you know, there's there's some memories that I think I kind of ran through. But I would tell my 20 year old self that to be patient and that things will come. Finally, you're a guy who's always pushing ahead. What's next for you? Um, right now, um, I'm putting together or I've put together an online course and I call it the Shake the Dirt Experience. 
And what I do is uh, you sign up, we meet uh, for an hour once a week. You have uh, 19 other participants along. And what we do is we walk back through the steps of your life, just like my program that I do with the youth. And I allow you to look at what you've gone through in your life and start to look at the different things that happen. Sometimes when we go through life and we have different things that we've gone through and we don't process them properly, they become the driver of our car and we just become the passenger. So I want you to be able to go back through your life and try to gauge some of those things so that you can take control and like I said, make a more strategic, more quality life. So it's an 11 week course and I do it with um, interactive activities, even though it may be virtual. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Michael. I've really enjoyed your stories. I think the one about the donkey will stay with me for a long time. Thanks. And thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. If you'd like to support the show, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at danflasconsulting.com. You can find Compassionate Leadership, the book on Amazon. And this episode was recorded by Squadcast in Sheffield and New York. And the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records. 